0: John 14, verse 12, hear the word of the Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father, and whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you solely on the basis of Jesus' work. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we ask that you would do good things in us, mighty things in our hearts, with these words today. That in the coming weeks you might do mighty things through us, all for your namesake. Amen. What I'd like to do this morning is kind of give you the big idea up front, and then we're going to break it down into five different parts, and then spend some time at the end on applications. So here's the big idea up front. Jesus promises that all his disciples will do works that reveal his glory, reflect his exalted status, and rely on his generosity to give us whatever we need, all for the glory of God. That's what you need to take home with you today. Jesus promises, note the divine wills in our text. Whoever believes in me will do. Greater works than these will he do. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So this is a promise of the Almighty Christ. Jesus promises that all his disciples will do works that reveal his glory, reflect his exalted status, and rely on His generosity to give us whatever we need. All for the glory of God. Now let's break that down into five smaller parts. Part one. Jesus promises that all His disciples will do the works He's talking about. His promise isn't limited to the eleven disciples that are in front of Him. They aren't for select groups. Uh, they're not for a select group of followers. not just for elders and deacons and missionaries and other leaders they're not even for a particular class of people jesus says it like this in verse 12 truly truly i say to you whoever believes in me will do the works that i do so these promises are for you all if you believe in jesus so if you read of Jesus in the Bible and you listen to his words and you take all confidence that he is Savior and Lord and he will change you and lead you, then these promises are for you. Therefore, all his disciples. You have works that Jesus wants you to do and that Jesus wants to do through you. He plans to use you to accomplish his purposes. No disciple is useless in his kingdom. No follower of Jesus sits on the bench. If you're, if you're on Jesus' team, you're playing today, right now. Regardless of how you may feel about your work situation, or the way your degree plan is turning out, or your, what your position in life is, or your age, or how many people might be overlooking your gifts. Jesus sees you. He saved you and has works he wants to do through you right now. And they are glorious, which brings us to part two. The works Jesus' disciples do reveal his glory. They reveal his glory. He says in verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Which led me to ask, what are the works that Jesus does? I mean, if I'm going to be doing them... What are they supposed to look like? I don't think he means that every Christian will be doing all the exact miracles he was doing. Changing water into wine. Raising a man three days dead. Walking on water. Feeding 5,000 and such. Not only do these particular miracles, especially in John's gospel, uh, display Jesus' unique role as Israel's Messiah. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that we shouldn't expect all Christians to perform miracles. God gives some the ability to perform miracles, and some of them even look like Jesus' miracles. But never are these kinds of works treated as common to all Christians everywhere, which is what Jesus is dealing with here so we can't limit them to specific miracles, though miracles might be included. We've got to go broader, and at least three things help us in John's gospel. And the first is this. Jesus' works include more than just his miracles in the gospel of John. They include more than just his miracles. Uh, for example, his works also include his words, his teaching. Look, look, just look a couple of verses back to verse 10. He says, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. The words that I speak to you, the Father who dwells in me does his works. So Jesus' words are part of his works. His works also include the whole of his ministry, everything he's doing. We see that in places like John uh, 4, verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And in the context there, he's evangelizing the Samaritan woman and her village. And then teaching, on top of that, his disciples to do likewise. So we can't limit Jesus' works to his miracles. They also include his words and everything that Jesus is about in his earthly ministry. Another help is this. Nearly every place that Jesus speaks about his works, he also reveals what his works are for. So his works serve as a mission, I mean as a a witness, in Jesus' mission to the Father's glory in Jesus for belief, for people's belief. His works serve as a witness to the Father's glory in Jesus for people's belief. We see that in verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. When you look at my works, you're supposed to see the Father working in me, my glory going on displayed, and this is supposed to produce in you faith, belief. So his works are broad enough to include all he says and does, and they serve as a witness to his glory for people's belief. And then one more helpful pointer. John says the rest of the world can't perform these works. John draws a stark contrast between the works the world performs and the works Jesus' disciples perform in chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. The only works the world can do are evil works. And what makes them evil is that they expose a refusal to come to the light of Jesus Christ. That's what makes the world's works evil. They don't showcase the glory of Jesus' light. I don't care how good they look to your eyes, they're not showcasing that Jesus is the light of the world and therefore they're evil. That's not so with the believer's works. When the believer comes to the light of Jesus, his work exhibits something radically different from the world's works. The believer's work exhibit God himself working. The believer's works exhibit that God is, has brought us to the light of the world, according to John 3, 21. The believer's works showcase God's glory working in the Son. So coming to Jesus as the light reveals that Jesus is the glorious one sent by the Father into a dark world. And that's what our works as Christians should do and what they they do. So I think the works that Jesus does and promises that all his disciples will also do are all the various Christ-like activities we do to showcase the Son's glory in a dark world for other people's belief in Jesus. They are all the various Christ-like activities we do To showcase the sun's glory in a dark world for the purpose of faith in Jesus. When the world looks at Jesus' disciples, when he he looks into your life, they should witness a community of people zealous for works that reveal Jesus' glory for belief. You may not heal the sick or raise the dead, but all of you will do things that shout, Jesus is glorious. Jesus is the best treasure. Trust in him. So your whole life will revolve around doing works that say this about Jesus. And more than that, part three, the works Jesus' disciples do will also reflect Jesus' exalted status they will reflect Jesus's exalted status verse 12 again whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the father now some people get really hung up here because they've already limited Jesus's works in the first part of verse 12 to his miracles So, they go on to suggest that Christians should expect to perform greater miracles than Jesus himself performed. Greater miracles than walking on the water and raising a man three days dead and such. While the longings of these folks might be uh, commendable, they make a grave error. They reduce the scope of Jesus' work to the spectacular while ignoring his humiliation in works like compassion to the spiritually destitute. Sacrificial service toward the needy and ultimately death on a shameful cross for sinners. Not to mention the fact that they've already missed the point in the first part of verse 12. They also fail to see that Jesus says, Very clearly in our text, what actually makes the greater works greater. He's going to the Father. That's the crucial link in verse 12. Greater works than these will you do because I am going to the Father. The point isn't that their healing ministry will get bumped up a notch higher than Jesus's was, but that Jesus will be exalted to his glorious state with the Father, and their works would then reflect his exalted status in heaven. They're greater in that they're associated with the new age of the risen Christ, the age that all the prophets longed to see but didn't see when God would deal the decisive blow to sin, unveil the world's Savior, pour out His Spirit on all flesh, and send His gospel far and wide to gather in all of the nations. Jesus' earthly works were only the beginnings, the, the, the pointers, the anticipation of the salvation that He would secure at the cross and the power He would then do through the Spirit once He was raised from the dead. At that point, all the disciples' evangelism and teaching and Christ-like service, even to the laying down of their own lives, would bear witness to Christ's finished work on the cross and his glorious exaltation to the Father's right hand. That's what's going on here. And as a result, thousands would come from all nations as the free offer of the forgiveness of sins was preached through the disciples And then authenticated by their deeds. So what we should do here when Jesus is talking about the greater works is that we should think Pentecost. When 3,000 souls were added in a single day with even some of the priests believing. When did that happen in Jesus' ministry? It didn't. If anything, he had 5,000 people following because he gave them some bread. Then he preached, and all of them left but 12, and one of them was a the devil. 3,000 souls added in a single day with even some of the priests believing. Then think of the the rapid spread of the good news from Judea and then out from Samaria and even to the utter and to the ends of the earth to include all the Gentile nations, this, this growth, this rapid growth that we see throughout the book of Acts and into the letters. With sometimes that message even being confirmed through miracle, miraculous signs and wonders. Think of God's word powerfully entering an idol-filled city like Thessalonica and turning sinners away from those idols to serve the living and the true God. And to this day, the gospel continues to penetrate the darkness and spread to all nations, bringing people from all backgrounds to bow their knee to the exalted Christ. That's what happens when Jesus returns to his father. He unleashes a ministry unlike the world has ever known and unlike his disciples ever witnessed, even in Jesus' own earthly ministry. This was the plan Jesus had been telling them all along. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Why will they hear and live? Because Jesus will be exalted. Exalted. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Why are they going to listen to his voice? Because Jesus will be exalted, and he will send the Spirit to open their ears. When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Why? Because when Jesus is exalted, he takes the cross of Christ and applies it to the hearts of men and brings them to himself. Disciples do works that reveal more that in imitation of Jesus' earthly life, they do works that reflect an exalted Jesus, who is gathering the nations through their words and deeds and prayers and sacrificial love, all of which point to his finished work and reign at the Father's right hand. Folks, this is why I've said before that the church isn't just an event on Sunday or another uh, um, organized uh, charity The church is a people who give visible testimony to the lordship of Christ and all that they think, do, say, and feel. Jesus wasn't promising us just a bunch of miraculous signs. He was promising us an entirely new state of being, that his exaltation would begin and that our works would then make evident to the world. Your work should show the world that God entered your life smashed all your idols, snapped the power of sin through the cross, disarmed the rulers and authorities, and now leads you daily to work such that all peoples hear and learn of his exalted status. Your works are greater in that they reflect the majesty of Jesus' reign over your life and his exaltation over the entire world. I don't care if you're healing the sick or changing diapers. If you're a believer... This is what your works display to the world. The way you do them says Jesus is Lord in heaven. I'll come back to that more in a minute, but for now let's keep moving. Part four, Jesus' disciples rely on Jesus' generosity to give them whatever they need for doing these greater works. We rely on Jesus' generosity to give us all we need. First part of verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Now verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So immediately we see that these greater works in us may stem from Jesus's exalted status in heaven. They come from him sending the Holy Spirit upon us to do these greater works. But we would do well to note that these greater works do not come apart from reliance upon the, exalted, upon the exalted Jesus in prayer. They don't come apart from our reliance on him in prayer. Twice he says to ask him whatever in his name, and twice he promises to do it when we do. He doesn't promise to do it apart from our asking but through our asking. He doesn't do it apart from our dependence on Him. He does it through our dependence on Him. Prayer is God's ordained means to access the exalted Christ so that we might gain whatever we need to accomplish His work. Meaning, if you're not asking, Jesus isn't bound to give you anything. His promise to give you whatever you need is conditional on your asking. We are reminded from, of the words in James chapter 4, verse 2, You have not because you ask not. Asking is a is necessary to the life of the disciple. In this sense, there is no such thing as a prayerless Christian. If Jesus Christ has risen and is seated at the right hand of God the Father and has sent His Holy Spirit into us, that Holy Spirit's cry, according to Galatians, is Abba. It happens. When you're born again, you cry out to God. You ask. If the exalted Christ has sent His Spirit into you, you ask. We come to God for help. We ask him for whatever we need to do these greater works. And when we ask, he promises to do it, to give it. This not only reveals Jesus' generosity toward his disciples, he will give them whatever they ask for in his name, it also reveals the place of authority from which he gives it. Nobody can talk like this except Jesus Christ. Because only Jesus has this kind of authority and power and access to such an inheritance that he could distribute it. As he says he can. In his exalted state, according to Matthew 28, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He possesses, according to Hebrews 1, a name that is higher than all other names. According to Hebrews 7, He possesses the power of an indestructible life. Psalm 2, He possesses the ends of the earth as His inheritance. Revelation 5, He possesses the divine right to control all history and distribute all things according to His Father's will and purpose and the good of His disciples. Nobody has that kind of authority, or power except Jesus. So if we're asking the exalted Christ, there are no limitations to what he can do. None of our requests are too big for him to handle, too much for him to provide. And when we ask, he promises to be generous with his answers. Now, I'm not saying these words support a name-it-and-claim-it sort of theology The idea being that whatever you name and claim with Jesus' name tacked on the end, he gives it to you automatically. First off, asking in Jesus' name isn't just a magical formula employed to get what we want. It's telling us how the request should be made. To ask in Jesus' name was to ask in a way that agrees with who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he stands for in his teaching. To so agree with who Jesus is, he is the crucified and exalted Lord. The only way I have access to God, this should amaze us, by the way, it's a little parenthesis. We're the only ones that could, can pray like this and have such confidence. How many millions of Muslims pray in vain? No prayers are being heard by God. None of their prayers are being heard by God. How many other people in other religions praying in vain to their idols? Christians are the only ones that have this kind of access because of the work of Jesus Christ. We have access to God. He is the only way. We talked about that last week. We have access to, be, to God to begin with, so we should be amazed that we can even pray like this in Jesus' name as his disciples. So, so to pray in Jesus' name is to ask in a way that agrees with who Jesus is, crucified and exalted Lord, our only entry way into the Father. It agrees with what he is like, what, what his character is like, what is his character like? He didn't seek riches. He gave up riches to become poor in order that we might become rich. He didn't name riches and claim it for this life. He gave up riches to come become poor in this life to give others life. And it agrees with what... He teaches when we pray in Jesus' name who He is, what He's like, and what He teaches. And what does He teach us back in chapter 12? He didn't teach us to live your best life now, He taught us to hate your life in this world in order to gain it. So it's not a magical formula to get whatever we want from our heavenly genie. Asking in Jesus' name is much like what John says in 1 John five fourteen. This is the confidence we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. The other thing to consider is that Jesus answers prayer not with the goal of making us look glorious, but with the goal of making his Father look glorious. Not with a goal of fulfilling our oftentimes self-centered plans, but with a goal of fulfilling his Father's Christ-centered plans. And that leads us into the fifth part here, part five. Jesus provides all we need for the glory of God. Not the glory of us, but for the glory of God. So out with the prosperity bull. Jesus promises to answer our request for whatever we need in order to glorify the Father in himself. Look again in verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's how prayer works. Prayer is the designed means for us to express our dependence on Christ and then for Christ to answer our requests in order that he might bring glory to the Father. So it turns out that the Son, even though he's leaving his disciples on, work, on earth and telling them to do works, it turns out that the Son never actually stops doing works, does he? He's just doing works from heaven through us in answer to our requests. He's still doing works from his exalted status. He's just doing them through us. And just like he glorified his Father on earth in all of his works throughout his earthly ministry, so now he glorifies his Father in heaven. When he answers our prayers from heaven, the Father's glory goes public in the Son. So if you ask, how do people see the Father's glory in the Son now that Jesus is in heaven, the answer would be people see the Father's glory in the Son with Jesus in heaven as he's answering our requests on earth. And those requests being answered that then produce works in the world that reveal Jesus' glory and reflect his exalted status. So all these things are intertwined within each other. So those are the five parts to break them up there from the the passage. Now, I want to bring them back together. Jesus promises that all his disciples will do works that reveal his glory, reflect his exalted status, and rely on his generosity to give us whatever we need, all for the glory of God. Now, let's get some application. Application number one, Jesus includes all of us in these greater works, not just some of us. That means every one of you who believes in Jesus is in the ministry. I didn't didn't go into the ministry when I became a pastor. Gary didn't surrender to the ministry when he decided to lead worship and get some training in seminary. We entered the ministry when we became Christians. And so did you. You entered the ministry when you were born again. You all have greater works under the exalted Christ that Jesus has enlisted you to accomplish. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, we are all all those who all those of us who are in Christ, we are all God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand for us to do that we might walk in them. I want three kinds of people to hear that this morning. The discouraged, the slothful, And the zealous. Some of you are discouraged in some measure because of where you're at in life. You don't know how the Lord wants to use you, and the track you're on now isn't all that clear right now. Let this promise of Jesus lift up your head that Jesus has greater works for you to do right now than even. Jesus himself could not accomplish while he was on earth. He could do all of them without you if he wanted, but he chooses not to. He's chosen to use you, and that was made clear when he caused you to be born again. So don't miss the opportunities to do the work that's immediately in front of you because you're waiting on something spectacular or something clearer. Clearer. He will be faithful to reveal those things in due time. Your task is to make him look glorious in all that's in front of you right now. And that's a glorious work. That's an, a mighty work. Some of you are simply slothful. Because for too long you functioned under the notion that only the leaders of the church do ministry. While you sit in the dark, while you sit in the sidelines... And watch TV. And the devil would like to keep you believing that. But the truth is that Jesus, like James and Paul and others in the Bible, links faith with works. Our works reveal whether we are real or not. Jesus says, whoever believes will do the works that I do. If you claim to believe, but haven't been doing much to make Jesus look glorious in the world, test whether or not you have truly believed, whether or not your faith is genuine. And if you have believed, then consider his promise again here. Greater works than these will you do. And then work with all the might he gives you from his exalted place in heaven. He's coming again and will render to each man according to his deeds. If you come to the conclusion that you're not real, then my exhortation to you is to believe. To believe. Jesus is finished. I told you a minute ago, we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody in this room, we pray through Christ, because of what Christ has done for us. If you find that you're not real, believe on His finished work for you. Believe in what He's accomplished for you on the cross. And you will have access to God, and the Spirit will come, and you will cry, Abba, and you will do these works that Jesus is talking about. And then the zealous. Some of you are zealous for the Lord's work. You're doing the works He's called you to do with all your might, and to the point that you're leaving everybody else in the dust. But let me encourage you not to forget that you're not the only one called to the ministry. There are 150 or so other people in this church that are just as called to the ministry as you are. And you would do well not to forget them and to learn from them and to take time to help them minister to others as well. If your ministry is too important to include others in the church in it, then you are too important to truly minister to anybody. All disciples are valuable to the church, and your place and in your, your pace in ministry shouldn't overlook that. Others have gifts and ministries that complement yours. And don't forget that part of the greater works that Jesus promises that you will do is to love one another as he has loved you in order that the world might know that the Father sent the Son. John 13 and John 17. Application number two. All that we're about should bear witness to the exalted Christ. All that we're about should bear witness to the exalted Christ. When you enter relationships with others... What is the first thing that people learn about you? What is, and what is the main thing that people know about you? Could it be said by those who meet you that, that the most important thing about you is that he serves a risen Christ? And even if they don't believe in the risen Christ, could they still say, This guy lives like Jesus is, is reigning in heaven. Could they say that your identity is bound up with a risen king and his kingdom? Could they say that your works prove he has risen victorious over sin, death, and the devil? Or are you just doing everything that they are doing? How are you responding to the events in our world that... that is how you're responding to the, the various events, the various crises in our world? The way you talk about them in front of others is... Um, you know, like your co-workers and your wife and children and family members, perhaps even those around a, a local restaurant. They've got the TV on. This is flashing across the screen. And there's no hope. And everybody should go into despair. And How, how are you responding to, those, to these various world crises as they came up in conversation? Would your words bear witness to an exalted king who is establishing an unshakable kingdom to triumph over the darkness? Does, does your confidence in Christ prove to your friends in various tangible deeds, things that you say to them, would it prove to them that you're, that you're standing on a holy mountain which will one day cover the earth, according to Daniel 2? Can they see the rock on which you stand? I'm not saying that you won't cry with them and weep with the world. I'm just saying that the way in which we do it will prove to them something different, that we have a different hope. When we create a family budget or spend our money or assess our giving, how well uh, well would you say that those things bear witness to Christ's exaltation. How, how, how well, uh, when you, if you show, how, how often do you show hospitality? And if you do, is it done in ways that bears witness to Jesus' reign in heaven? Maybe you could ask questions like this as you're assessing, assessing how you give and what your budget should look like. Does Does my budget show that I belong to a kingdom that's not of this world? Does our giving reveal that Jesus and his mission is more glorious than my entertainment choices and hobbies? What sacrifices are we willing to make this year to help others see that our reigning king possesses the riches of heaven and earth and will meet every one of my needs? Is there any real and and thankful awareness that, that my exalted Lord sees every transaction I make and I will make it with my aim and I will make it my aim to please my exalted Lord with every transaction? If Jesus has broken the world's grip on our souls and given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and ensures us a kingdom that's coming when they, where they use gold as asphalt in the streets, how could we not think like this now with our money? Every work we do with our money should reveal the exalted Lord. Isn't that what we see in the book of Acts? Chapter 2, chapter 4... People selling their possessions and belongings, distributing to any with with needs. Barnabas selling a field, laying the money at the apostles' feet. Why is he doing it? He's doing it because of the exalted Jesus. At least that's the way Luke presents it. The apostles were testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. And Barnabas goes and sells his field. An exalted Lord will produce great works of generosity because we have a king that owns everything. We can also work heartily for the Lord in our respective vocations and not merely to please men. Why? We serve a resurrected king. We no longer do our work for the same reasons the world does its work. We work in such a manner as to show the world that our work is carried out by God, that he has brought us to the light of the world, Jesus Christ, to reflect his worth and his beauty and his glory in all that we do. The Lord's truthfulness characterizes our works. His initiative characterizes our labors. His Father's reward is enough to keep us going in the midst of trial, with this or that boss, with this or that thing that comes up at work. His sacrificial love for neighbor is behind all of our keystrokes and all of our brainstorming and all of our time that we're investing. When we live like this, then the world has reason to ask, what's this guy all about? What's this lady all about? And there you have opportunity to speak of the exalted Christ. I've heard David Platt put it this way. "Privatize faith in a resurrected king is practically impossible. Privatize faith in a resurrected king is practically impossible. Meaning the resurrected king, if we have faith in this resurrected king, it will work itself out practically in all of the various areas of our lives. People will see it All that we do as Christians, whether it's our ethics at work or our testimony at the gym or our commitment to justice or our hope in the resurrection or our use of education, everything should tell the story of our exalted Lord. Our words about Jesus must accompany our deeds. Our deeds must accompany our words. We want the world to see him and come to him and delight in Him, We don't want the world to see our stuff, to talk about our stuff. We want everything about us, including the sort of stuff we have, to prove that Jesus is worth more than what this world can offer us. Lastly, application number three, we should ask God to do great things through us. We should ask God to do great things through us. I think many of us struggle to believe Jesus' promise to answer our requests, as he has said he would do. Uh, we, we struggle to believe Jesus' promise that he's going to give us whatever we need for these greater works. And that could be for, for several reasons. Some of us have rightly criticized the heretical theology of prosperity teachers, the, the name-it-claim-it stuff I was talking about earlier. But our our, our criticisms have sometimes caused us to fear asking God to do great and miraculous things at all. Strangely, in our reactions to the false teachers, we go on and on and on about what God won't do for us that we hardly ever talk about what God is willing and able to do for us. If we'd only ask. We've rightly blasted the selfish asking, but we've wrongly neglected the God that we're asking. We're talking about the exalted Christ here, who upholds the universe, has infinite riches at his disposal, who is all-powerful and all-knowing and self-sufficient, who is the source of eternal life itself, who rules over all enemy forces and can dispel them at will and is generous to all of God's children if they would just ask. We can still pray extraordinary things because we have an extraordinary God. So let's not allow our prayers to suffer because of fears that we have, because of historical abuses of Jesus' words. Let's instead lay our requests, both small and great, at Jesus' feet every day and trust that he will answer them as he's promised. Others may struggle to believe Jesus' promise to give us whatever we need because... This just hasn't been your experience. You've asked, it didn't happen, and so you've given up asking altogether. You've begun wondering whether Jesus is so truthful after all. Or maybe he's just not able. He hears, but he's just not able. I've been there before, doubting whether his promise is sure. Whether prayer is all the Bible makes it out to be. But the more I've walked with the Lord and saw his word, the more that he has rebuked me for my pride and corrected my thinking. One way he's done that is by helping me see that God answers prayer in his timing and not ours. That may mean he answers prayer immediately, and I have witnessed that. But that also may mean he answers our requests even long after we're gone from this world. And people in church history have witnessed that. People praying for revival in certain cities. There's a story of about a hundred women or so praying for a revival in... um, Oh, what's the place next to England? What? Wales. Thank you. Somebody said Wales. Yeah. They all die. Revival breaks out. (laughs) What? So he doesn't always answer on our, in our time when we think he should, but he answers, which should remind us again that prayer isn't about us. It's about God's glory. Satan wants us to believe that if Jesus doesn't answer your request immediately, then he's not trustworthy. This is the little lies that he feeds us. And so does our culture. Our culture, our, our, our microwave, smartphone, instantaneous access type of culture, which trains us day in and day out to have everything immediately right now on the double. Time is money or I'm mad. Give it to me. Right? This is what our culture feeds us. And when we don't get it, we stop trusting. That you haven't seen Jesus' answer requests you've made doesn't mean he's failed you or that he has ignored you or that he's unable to do it. It could mean that he just hasn't answered it yet. It could also mean that he's answered it, but that you just don't have eyes to see it. He sometimes answers requests in ways we don't expect. Sometimes we have eyes to see it. Sometimes we don't. But just because he doesn't answer in the way we'd like him to doesn't mean our prayers aren't being heard. And this we must keep in mind before casting off prayer altogether. Far better would it be for us to pray for the infinite God to give us us finite beings eyes to see than to call into question his trustworthiness and ability for what we cannot see. So, let's ask him. Let's ask him, Redeemer. He will answer on his timetable and in ways you didn't expect or in ways you just can't see yet. But he is not deaf to your requests. He hears you and promises to give us whatever we need to accomplish his works. Ask him to add to our number daily those who are being saved. Ask him to save people and then ask him to give you all that you need to disciple them, to care for them, to help them, to sacrifice him. So you see, this this prayer is actually frightens me somewhat. This promise of Jesus is here. Because I know what he can do. I know the kinds of people that he can change. But if he's changing the, people, the kind of people that I'm encountering in these neighborhoods, with so many needs, and so many demands, and so many things that I don't even know how to answer right now, If he starts saving them, doing great things, now I've got to die to myself more. Now I've got to invest. Which could also be a reason why we're not asking. We don't want to deal with it. We should ask him to save people and then ask him to give us all that we need to help the people once he has saved them. It's not about us it's about the father receiving glory in the son we should ask him to tear down the spiritual strongholds in our city through the proclamation of the word we should ask him for revival in our hearts and reformation in all of the churches in our metropolis how many criticisms have left your mouth about various churches in the area versus how many prayers you're actually praying for god to bring them reformation and healing and restoration We're not here for just Redeemer. We want to cry out to God for him to do marvels through other people. And if he doesn't use us, so be it. Let's make the other 300 Baptist churches in the area healthy. Ask him to do it. Ask him to instill in our men the aggressive yet gentle love of Christ. And in our women the faith in a sovereign God that makes them smile at the future. Ask Him to far exceed our expectations in evangelizing our neighbors. Ask the Lord to save people in the city that would make every self-righteous bone in your body blush at the Lord's extravagant love. Ask God to extend His kingdom. Ask Him for the fullness of His Spirit. These are all from the New Testament. Ask Him to vindicate His elect. Ask Him to heal the sick. Yes, ask Him to do the miraculous. James 5 doesn't have a problem with the miraculous. He even uses Elijah, who shut up the skies so that it wouldn't rain with his prayers. And he's telling us pray. Ask him to cast out demons. Ask him to bring justice for the unborn. Ask him for others suffering, to to, to, to bring justice for others suffering in Iraq and West Africa right now. Ask him for wisdom. And for more reinforcements, elders, deacons, teachers, ask him for vision. Give vision to this church. Ask him to bring unity where you think unity is impossible. Ask him for endurance against temptation. Temptations that you even think that you'll never overcome. Ask him to conquer them. Ask him for material resources and supplies to multiply ministries. Whatever you need, ask him. Ask God. You, you've got some people in business here. Ask God to give you what you think you need to get your business off the ground that you might serve your neighbor through your business and bring a Christian ethic to bear on your particular industry so that others might be saved. Others might look at that work that's, that's quality, that's, that's done with integrity, that that man does his work in the name of Jesus. I know his company. I know what that guy's about. Whatever you need, ask. We doubt God works this way. I had a friend in seminary. And he wanted to do studies abroad. Didn't have any... And and was certain the Lord was calling him to this particular ministry. He needed $50,000 in the bank so that they would actually accept him. The day before the deadline, he made a call to... uh, I want to say it was Travis Bennett. And Travis just asks him, Did you pray about it? It's like, Well, I don't really think God works like that. Prays about it. Next day, $50,000 in the bank from a man who called him and asked him if he wants to go to school there. He told me about it. The money was in his bank, and I was still not believing. Come on. Whatever you need, ask. He's not far off and disconnected from your needs. He's available and ready to give you what you need for His work. So that the Father may be glorified. That kind of thing? I mean, just read. If you want some help, read George Mueller's autobiography. That'd be a good investment for you to make. For you and your family and your prayer life. He's not far off. He knows what we need and he's able to do it. So let's not insult Jesus' ability to provide for the mission by keeping quiet or being reserved or limiting what he's able to do. He doesn't lie. All his promises are sure. He sealed them with his blood. He is now exalted at God's right hand. His abilities, never to be called into question, and he wants you to ask. So I think we ought to do that now. Wes, you want to come read us?